You're listening to Don't Waste Water. Considerable lower pressure on water resources will be achieved if we avoid the cultivation of the surplus food, which is wasted. Regarding the European Union, 88 million tons of food waste each year are being wasted, and it has costs of around 143 million euros, as EU Project Fusions has done these calculations and suggested. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. With the circular economy, you have different options regarding the recycling, the reuse of components and so on. And then with the help of the life cycle assessment, you can get uh, an exact number, an exact measurement of environmental burden of environmental pollution of each of these options. And then you can choose the one that influences the environment the least. I'm your host, Antoine Valter. And in today's episode, I'm thrilled to welcome Dubravka Skonka as my guest. So basically, the majority of CEOs are quite aware that their business strategy if not today, will have to be sustainable in the future. 62% of executives are considering that it's necessary for a sustainability strategy to be competitive today, and another 22% of them are thinking it will be necessary in the future. Dubravka is LCA representative and expert for the European Commission, but also an SME support leader at the European Regional Development Fund, a business consultant and a council representative at various EIT groups. Inside of this overall food waste, a large part is domestic waste and it's contributing to pollution of water resources significantly. And what is also one of the information from our white paper is that about one quarter of all water used in agriculture each year is food that is consumed but ultimately wasted. Dubravka is also LCA leader for Green Protein, a European project which aims at a major innovation in the fields of protein production and food loss reduction in the EU by producing high added value, food-grade functional proteins and other ingredients ingredients out of greenfield waste. If our industrial world wants one day to return to its circular origins, it will need to leverage the right tools. This is where life cycle assessment or LCA kicks in. Indeed, by evaluating the environmental impacts of a product or service over its entire life cycle, LCA provides a systematic framework to identify and assess environmental impacts associated with a product or service, including energy use, greenhouse gas emissions, waste generation, and, as probably most interesting for us, water use. Hence, LCA is a powerful decision-making tool that helps identify opportunities to reduce environmental impacts, improve efficiency, and promote circularity. I won't tell you too much about it in this intro, as Dubravka will do that much better than me in a minute, but I'm pretty sure that the toolbox she'll present today can be of interest to help you take better or more sustainable decisions in the future. So let's jump into it. Of course, once I've reminded you that if you like what you hear, you can take this episode and share it with a friend, a colleague, your boss or your LinkedIn network. Come on, do it and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. 
For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Dubravka. Welcome to the show. Hi, Antoine. It's my pleasure to be here. Actually, I'm curious to get to know a bit better today your field of expertise and a different way to look at the water challenges we face right now, because you're not coming from a water angle. And that is something which is quite appealing to me. I'd like to start by getting to know you. And that starts with a pretty simple question. How did you first get interested in research and innovation and partnerships and global challenges? That's an interesting question. So for a long time, I have been a professor at university. Research was something that I was doing since I was 22. But when I entered the Green Protein Project, which was financed with European Commission Horizon 2020 Biobased Industries Grant, I was lifecycle leader in this project. And this is actually where I got really accustomed and very interested in the global goals. And because our goal there was to make a protein, to extract it in an environmentally friendly way from sugar beet leaves. And this was really interesting for me. We had established a demo plant in Netherlands. So the entire process was really the full research and development and innovation related. So this is in 2016 when the project started. And this is the start of my serious career in this area. Say it like that. So for the muggle, which in this case is me, can you define life cycle and life cycle assessment? Where does it start? Where does it stop? What's the content of it? Basically, life cycle assessment, it's a scientific tool and it helps you to measure the impact on the environment of products regarding all the stages of their life cycle. And for example, with the circular economy, you have different options regarding the recycling, the reuse of components and so on. And then with the help of the life cycle assessment, you can get an exact number, an exact measurement of environmental burden of environmental pollution of each of these options. And then you can choose the one that influences the environment the least. You started in 2016 to get interested into this global challenges and that got you to look at water. So water is one of the components in this life cycle assessment. Yes, that is correct. The water footprint is one of the environmental impact categories that life cycle assessment is measuring with the help of the software. And when you enter all the input and output data of the certain production system, you then get all these indicators quantified. Water footprint, global warming potential, I mean CO2, ozone layer depletion, land use, and so on. And then you can have a better picture about the possibility how to do the mitigation, optimization strategies to lower the environmental impact. You mentioned this Horizon 2020 project, which started in 2016. How long will it still last? So it has ended last year at the end of May 2021. So it lasted almost five years. And so when the project was over, what did you do after that? During the entire time while I was on the project, at the same time, uh, I was university professor, which I am still. And before the project ended, I have actually started to collaborate with the EIT and especially EIT Food. And this is something that I have done and I have supported them in their activities. And also uh, soon after the project uh, ended uh, in October 2021, I have become a leading SME support expert for the GO project, uh, which is uh, helping Swedish SMEs to do the green transition and to implement life cycle assessment, circular economy principles and so on in their business. It's also the EU project financed by European Regional Development Fund and Region Scane. If I'm right, now it's really from the top of my head. Inside that project, you have 25 SMEs, right? 
Yes, altogether 25 SMEs. What's the profiles of those companies? It's a really good question because these companies are in the area of food. They are in the different part of the value chain of the food production. And my area of expertise outside of life cycle assessment is food chains. That's what my PhD was about. Okay, I'd like to come back to this topic of food in a minute, but you mentioned EIT, and actually that's what brings us somehow to together. We will be sitting in a roundtable together on the topic of how to go fully water circular by 2050. And I'd like to start with your opinion as a life cycle expert. Do you think that we're ready to go fully water circular? My colleague on the round table, Gonzalo, would be the right address for this question. I would not give my prediction because I think he is the expert for that question. So I can give you my opinion, which is very clear. It's, to, to me, it's a no, we're not ready. So the question is, how do we get ready? And I think to that extent, what you just said makes a lot of sense. How would you define the water circularity? I would basically start not with the water circularity, but with the circularity concept on its own. So in brief, I would like to just mention that we have the linear economy, which is cradle to grave approach. We have goods designed for a single lifetime disposed on the landfill after the use. And this is putting a significant pressure on the environment on the one hand, on the other hand, on natural resource extraction. But if we compare linear economy with the circular economy, we can see the circular economy actually promotes a quite different approach. It's a cradle-to-cradle -cradle approach. And here we are using the waste of one industry as the resource for another. Circularity is implemented at every stage of the value chain. And the usage of recycling, renewable energy, uh, using products as long as possible is enforced. And then we have one thing with the circular economy principles. So reusing of the components can require additional transport in some cases for the collection of these components. On the other hand, if we are using recycled materials, this could shorten the lifetime of a product. And we sometimes have a problem how to choose the best circular strategy. And this is where the life cycle assessment actually helps. As we've spoken before, it provides with a number and a scientific tool. It measures environmental footprint, all stages of the life cycle of a product. And it can actually do the comparison of different circular economy strategies. So, for example, different types of water use, different types of water treatments in the case of water, for example. And why is this really important, for example, for startups, SMEs, in some cases, municipalities? Because this combination of the life cycle assessment methodology on the one hand and the circular economy principles on the other provides a good comparison of circular strategies and helps this small player to choose the strategy that is best for them, not only from the environmental aspect, but also from the cost-cutting aspect. Because if you use less resources, you will, in most of the cases, pay less. So life cycle assessment helps here to indicate hotspots in the production chain of the startups or the SMEs. And what is really important, it can help startups and SMEs to choose the most sustainable suppliers. And why is this really important? This is really important because it can enable board startups and SMEs to be partners for the large multinational enterprises. Because these large multinational enterprises are wanting to collaborate only with those small companies, innovative companies, which have the entire value chain and all of their suppliers in check and where their entire chain is environmentally friendly. 
So in this case, it provides a significant amount of help to SMEs and startups for choosing the sustainable suppliers, but also SMEs and startups, uh, by using a life cycle assessment in combination with the circular economy, can actually showcase their own consumers how can they lower their environmental footprint? In the case of the food production chain, for example, they can showcase on the website or on the packaging of the product how much CO2 or liters of water can be saved if, for example, the packaging is being recycled and there is no food waste with the consumer. And it can be quantified in liters of water and in kilograms of CO2. So that's very important for the consumers to see. And what I would also like to emphasize at the end, that this combination of life cycle assessment and circular economy can help startups and small and medium enterprises to build environmental profile, which can be part of their business plan. So when they are pitching their ideas to investors or when they are trying to get bank loans or when they are applying for the European projects, it's a thing that they can get help from the most. But there is an also an added value because the research has shown that the group of consumers called millennials are really attracted to buy products and services from companies that are environmentally aware. And also, on the other hand, millennials are motivated to work for these companies, for these startups, SMEs and companies in general which are showing this environmental aspect in their business. There's a lot in what you just said, which... I'd like to deconstruct it a bit to try to understand it even better. Let's start by the end with this, how to appeal to millennials. Millennials today are a portion of the workforce and are a portion of, of the stakeholders in our society, but I guess they are not yet the majority in the decision makers and, and among the C-level in big companies. How widespread is it today, this awareness of the importance of circularity and this vision of the cradle to cradle are really the entire cycle of a product and all its components? There was actually a research done by an EMD professor, which was also conclusions of this published at the World Economic Forum website. And basically, the majority of CEOs are quite aware that their business strategy, if not today, will have to be sustainable in the future. 62% of executives are considering that it's necessary for a sustainability strategy to be competitive today. And another 22% of them are thinking it will be necessary in the future. So the data are encouraging. And also, if we see the big multinational companies and their websites, it is encouraging that we can see the entire reports about circular economy principles implementation, then also life cycle assessment conclusions. And they are getting to implement all these strategies in their business because their market research has proven that consumers nowadays are really environmentally aware. And also what is really important, their reputation depends on how much environmentally friendly they are. And what do I mean by this? When I mentioned that they want to collaborate only with SMEs and startups, which are having the sustainable suppliers. So these multinational companies even have the special requirements for the companies they are associating themselves with that they should portray in their value chain. Because if the opposite happens, and if some kind of huge environmental pollution is related to the supplier network, 
or on the other hand, child labor or something like this, this entire multinational companies and their stakes and their financial market uh, that they have is going to be actually really impacted by this, which we saw in the last years, how these aspects are really important. So I would say that the answer on your question is that yes, they are aware and they are working towards achieving the full sustainability across the value chain. Don't get me wrong, I don't want to push you in a corner. I'd like to get the, the level of deployment. And when you say that they are aware and that it will be part of what they will be doing, what I hear also is that they don't necessarily do it today. So it's a rollout, I guess. The world doesn't change in one day. I'm just trying to figure out from your experience with, for instance, the tool of life cycle assessment, when you present that to SMEs or to bigger companies, is it a weird animal to them or do they know the tool and you have to convince them of how useful it is? What is the level of deployment on this? So you have mentioned in the future and not today. So no, today, multinational companies are requiring from the companies they are associating themselves with to have mm -hmm. a sustainable supply chain. And these are the requirements which are enforced today. But the research that I have mentioned, I have mentioned that CEOs are aware that if not, their companies should have completely sustainable strategy right now, they will need to have it in the future. And this means that uh, the great majority of them actually is doing this already. So the answer on your question, life cycle assessment, when I speak with representatives of large multinational companies, they are really aware of it. And also when I speak with the SMEs, they are also aware of it. And the, regarding the startups, majority of them, yes. But I would like to say that it depends in which part of Europe we are talking about. So the parts of Europe which are really environmentally aware and are employing sustainability strategies more than the others. For example, if we have Sweden, they, of course, there's a great majority of startups, SMEs, large companies know about life cycle assessment and has either already implemented it or they will implement it in the future. In the preparations of our roundtable, I've seen the mention of this uh, Circular Water 2050 Horizon, which is a report done by KWR. And they mention how it starts with a fully circular slash renewable and safe use of feedstock. And I've seen you talking about future fit food systems. And I was wondering if those two concepts are the same and what would be your definition? When regarding my background as a scientist and university professor, my answer on this question should have to be based on the research that I have already undertaken because I do not like to give subjective predictions or my own opinion in that sense if it's not based in my research. So regarding the feed, I would like to say that the question that you have posed is very interesting. And I have done an interesting research regarding the chicken meat chain, which actually included 119 farms, slaughterhouses, processing plants and retailers, and 500 households, which had altogether more than 2,000 consumers. And what were the results from the environmental part of this research? It was a life cycle assessment. So 619 life cycle assessment calculations have been done. And the results were that actually the feed production at the farm had the highest influence regarding the environmental burden on the farm. And the farm was leading with the environmental burden in comparison to the other four subsystems. So it had the same environmental pollution as slaughterhouse plus processing plant plus retail plus household altogether per kilogram of chicken meat, of course, because everything is recalculated according to the functional unit, which is kilogram of chicken meat, in order for all of this to be comparable, of course. 
So I would say that feed production on the farm provides the largest environmental burden and the actions towards this should be undertook in the future. So that would be actually my answer regarding my own research from this point. Yeah. I've discussed on that microphone with Claudia Winkler and Alice Schmidt, who wrote a book called The Sustainability Puzzle. And we discussed about systems of systems and how it's difficult in a system of systems to decide which subsystem you start working on first. And sometimes it's even not the sensitive way to do it. Sometimes you go on the system of systems and you work there. When you identify that one of these subsystems is a significant contributor, what's a possible way to address that? Do you address that portion of the feedstock value chain? Or do you take the whole thing and try to reconsider step by step everything which is inside? Regarding any of the hotspots, so for example, here was the production of feed, but when you find which is the hotspot with the help of life cycle assessment, what you do next is that you analyze the possibilities for optimization, for possible mitigation options, how to lower this aspect and what you do then in life cycle assessment, you are undertaking sensitivity analysis. Sensitivity analysis means that you are testing uh, different aspects that could possibly provide solution for lower environmental uh, impact in this area. So you will test the different aspects of the problem and then you will see which one is the best. And this is how like life cycle assessment can actually provide the real help. Usually when life cycle assessment is being undertook, uh, in my experience, in the paper that I have published, in the project that I'm doing with the Swedish SMEs and so on, so we go into the subsystem that their environmental burden is the highest, and then we see what can we do to test different solutions for this. And then if we lower the environmental impact like this, then in all together in the chain, it will be lowered. I have again a question for the muggle, which is still me. Life cycle assessment, is that a picture? Like you do an entire calculation, you run it, and then you get a result? Or is it like a living tool which will keep processing in the back and which will update you with new information as soon as something new happens in your process? This is a really good and very interesting question. So I will give you a brief intro into the how life cycle assessment uh, is being done. And first, I will just say to you that, yes, you are right. It depends uh, at which point you are doing life cycle assessment. So, for example, for the EU projects, when uh, the project is close to the end, when you have the entire production system at place, then you do life cycle assessment and see if there any fine tuning can be done. I will tell you what was basically the steps for this chicken meat chain analysis. So first, we have established the questionnaire, which we have structured and put questions for the people working in the farms, slaughterhouses, processing plants, retails, and then also for the consumers in the households. What was our main reason for this questionnaire is to, to give them was to have the, all the inputs and all the outputs from the process. So we have gathered data for the inputs, including the water, the different types of energy, electricity, diesel, LPG, natural gas, packaging materials, plastic paper materials, and also output paper waste, bio waste, wastewater, which are related to this production and consumption of one kilogram of chicken we have recalculated like all this data per our functional unit, one kilogram of chicken meat, and then we entered this information into the software. And when we press calculate in the software, then we get the exact numbers for each type of the environmental impact categories. And what has helped us significantly 
regarding the chicken meat uh, chain and the entire life cycle assessment uh, procedure, it helped us realize that the results were, of course, quite different between examinated farms, slaughterhouses, processing plants, retailers. And uh, the main reason that we have figured out why is because smaller stakeholders had higher environmental burden due to lack of the financial resources. So this is something that was the practical implementation of LCA, which led us to see that actually it's really important for startups and SMEs to undertake LCA as soon as they can, because it can really help them in the future. But yes, life cycle assessment, uh, in a way, is a dynamic tool, but you are choosing to do it at one point in the time. So at that point in the time, you will have the LCA and you will publish the results. And also, to this point of time, you will actually also make the boundaries of the entire system. You will say in your analysis that, for example, you have included all the chemicals using for cleaning processes. You have also including transport and plus, of course, all activities that are taking place in each farm, slaughterhouse, meat processing plant and retail. And this is how you actually close the system. You say when you have done the analysis, at which point of time, and then you have the results. And then the afterwards, you do the sensitivity analysis, which can actually help you with mitigation options. But you are completely right. In a year, of course, the life cycle assessment can be done again. And then probably the results will be different, especially if the stakeholders have implemented some of the mitigation, optimization, environmental options that we suggested. During your life cycle analysis process, how do you deal with the externalities? Like, for instance, water scarcity might be an externality. How does it or does it even influence your, your calculation? Regarding the usual practice of doing life cycle assessment with uh, SMEs uh, and also large companies and the production plants and so on. So what do you do? Yeah, we are using uh, water use uh, as an input. So we are checking uh, how much water is needed for the production of one kilogram of chicken meat, for example, for all of the subsystems. And we are entering this in the software. And then at the end, uh, we are seeing water footprint. So in that sense, we are using Using, but then we have an added value uh, because of the sensitivity analysis. We can test uh, different water treatment options and then do the environmental burden comparison between the different water treatments and then choose the most environmentally friendly one. I mean, I also wanted to tell you an interesting uh, fact about the Busum Water Tower in Netherlands, which is one of the most sustainable buildings in Netherlands. And actually, what is interesting here is that they are doing the treatment of the wastewater organically. So they have a pond with particular kind of plants, which purifies the wastewater organically. So this is maybe something that would be more common in the future. So I just wanted to mention that there are different, not only typical industrial ways of water treatment. Yeah, it's a topic we've discussed on that microphone with Denise Engelbrecht from Enso Earth on the living buildings and the living machines, which might be part of the future of the way we deal with water in a more circular fashion and on much shorter circle. So interesting that you mention it. You've been co-authoring a white paper on innovative solutions to cope with water scarcity. Yes. What is your involvement in that white paper? So my involvement in the white paper was regarding the food waste and uh, the aspects of the water scarcity and uh, how they are interconnected. It's uh, actually because the percentage of total fresh water that agriculture is using is actually 70% on the global well, uh, level, according to the World Bank. 
data. Of course, the considerable lower pressure on water resources will be achieved if we avoid the cultivation of the surplus food, which is wasted. Regarding the European Union, 88 million tons of food waste each year are being wasted, and it has costs of around 143 million euros as EU project fusions has done these calculations and suggested. So uh, food waste is connected with climate change, with the consumption, overconsumption, food scarcity, but food security, but also water scarcity. And what is also really important is inside of this overall food waste, a large part is domestic waste and it's contributing to pollution of water resources significantly. And what is also one of the information from our white paper is that about one quarter of all water used in agriculture each year is food that is consumed but ultimately wasted. So one quarter of the water is related to this water regarding the food waste. And what is also these examples, which I mentioned also in the white paper, but also during the Water Academy, which, which is inside the same project with the EIT, are the examples of uh, startups which made a huge difference in this area. And this is the Olio app and also Too Good To Go app. Both of them were founded in 2015. And for example, Olio app um, has over 6 million users and it connects people in local community. People are providing food for their neighbors in need. And it's a carbon negative company. They saved over 65 million portions of food across over 60 countries. And it helped fought water scarcity significantly. They saved billions of liters of water. And on the other hand, we have uh, Too Good To Go app, which is the user is downloading the app, finding the nearby restaurant, bakery or a hotel, then paying and picking up the food. And in this way, it's saving it from going to waste. And the Too Good To Go app is also having an additional benefit because with the help of the app, like you are finding the nearest place which you are taking the food from, which is really important because of the transport and related environmental emissions, which are then in this case lower or insignificant because many people are going by foot to grab this food. And the important part is that to go, to go up is finding ways in the future to reduce food waste across the entire chain, which is really important for the future. So these are examples of the startups, which actually have made a significant difference in relation to the food waste water use and uh, fighting water scarcity is uh, one of the um, additional benefits. i just like to put into perspective what you just said about these numbers on agriculture being 70 to 80 percent of the water use worldwide and 25 percent of that water going wasted. That means that 20 percent of the water in the world is wasted. And we're having this full conversation about water because of the, the projection of the OCDE, which was showing how 40% of the water will go missing by 2030 if we want to strike a balance without changing anything in our behavior. So it sounds like an incredible, and sorry for the pun, low-hanging fruit to have this 20% of water, which is just pure waste today. And if we eliminate that waste, half of the problem is solved. So I know it's easier said than done, but in terms of putting the big numbers, that's interesting to see how obvious it sounds to be to be addressing that, that problem. The two apps you mentioned are B2C apps. So it's really taking the consumer on board. 88 million tons was the amount of food waste you mentioned, right? Yes, in the European Union each yeah. year. Is it households which waste that food or is it also, I don't know, supermarkets or restaurants or 
agri-food businesses? Where is the, the chunk of that, that, that waste coming from? It's all the numbers that you have mentioned are for all together. But what is the biggest contributor? It really depends on the country that you are looking at. So I don't have an exact answer on your question, but households are having the significant percentage here in all of the countries. What is the common denominator? All of the EU countries is that households do hold in each of the countries significant percentage. And if we would work on the household part of the chain, a lot of aspects could be changed. And Olio, for example, is working regarding this part of the chain. But so millions of users for Olio and Too Good To Go, that, that's incredible really and it's an amazing achievement but if i take the other side of the same coin it's still a small percentage of all the users so how do you bring everybody on board i would say so for example just to clarify so olio is including households but it's also including hotels restaurants and so on if they mm -hmm. are interested in donating food on the other hand too good to go is including businesses who are giving food to consumers but otherwise this food would be wasted my answer on your question would be that one of the solution could be actually in startups because they are innovative and they are small and which means they are very flexible and i think that the solution is in employing startups to help big companies with their innovativeness and their flexibility because if you join a big company which is not so flexible but has the resources and startup which is innovative but doesn't have so much financial resources then you can do a lot in this area and this is one of the reasons why i think the competition like we are going to have in the main event is really important and also the small and medium companies and startups fighting water scarcity can truly make a difference so i would say in the beginning they can start by themselves with their innovative ideas and in the future they could possibly connect with the larger players And then we have the entire ecosystem interconnected and some important innovative and environmentally friendly solutions implemented. This aspect of bringing the consumer on board is something which, let me do a very personal comment here. When you go to a shop, like a supermarket in Switzerland, which is the place where I'm working, day in, day out, 365 days per year, you see the same fruits and vegetables because consumers are used to have that delivery. And so that means that in order to have fruits and vegetables available all the time, all year long, notwithstanding the rules of seasonality, you need to have, of course, kind of a lot of waste because sometimes that food will be traveling much more than it should reasonably. So that's one aspect. And the other aspect is I've been reading a very interesting study from Paolo Dodorico and his team where he was showing that if you take the entire world and you change the allocation of crops in all the places, then water can become much more efficient and it's used to, to grow crops because if you plant the right crop at the right place, then you're going to get much better returns. And he was showing how in Europe you could almost multiply by four the value of water and up to eight in Northeast Asia because he was showing how, for instance, rice wouldn't be always the best crop to grow there. And where I'm heading with that is that as a consumer, if we were going to that very water-optimized way to, to choose our crop and the, the kind of delivery we get, You can no longer have this sortiment of the same fruit and vegetables available all the time next to your place. You might just get the ones which are really local to your region. And that would make a lot of environmental sense, but you would need to win the adhesion of the people to and the acceptance to, to go that route. Or you will need to have much more ships which are taking fruits and vegetables across the world all the time, which means then 
a huge work in terms of life cycle assessment. So I guess that's the place where you come in again. So do you have an opinion on all of that? I have an opinion regarding how can we put consumers in this entire innovative ecosystem and in a way what you have just mentioned. Consumers need to be showcased uh, the difference of their different actions that they could undertake. And uh, this difference should be calculated and uh, this uh, should be actually measurable. So people are reacting uh, when they are seeing the exact guide, the exact manual, how and why they should undertake the certain actions. If you just say to people, it is better for the environment not to have all the fruits and vegetables available at all times during the year because of the pollution, that is one aspect of framing this. But if you say to end consumers the same sentence, but then you provide proof because this amount of CO2, liters of water and possibly connected ecotoxicity, uh, human toxicity and the aspects that could influence human health and then uh, quantify all of these aspects, then this advice uh, and manual for consumers will have a different weight because uh, on psychological aspect, it's not important just to tell them that something is better than the other, but you need to prove your point and to actually, in the logical way, showcase how the future generation will be impacted with the choice that the current generation is making in the supermarket. And when you do it in that way and you back it up with the data, the numbers, then I think we can see better results. You, you mentioned this uh, main event of our roundtables so happening yes. before and after a roundtable. Yes. How important is this kind of event in putting these kind of topics at the center of people's attention to, to break the halo of yeah, ignorance is maybe a big word, but honestly, <laughs> if I take my own case, I would say ignorance. I think that's really a great way how to raise the interest of the public, especially because the pitching events are showcasing the passion SMEs are having towards their sustainably friendly issues, in this case, spotting water scarcity. And I would say that it's really important for the public and to viewers of the event, because it's going to be an online event, to see the pitching and to see how people are really fighting to help lower the environmental burden. I think that that will have a positive influence on the broader audience that is going to follow this event. On the other hand, because I was previously judge and mentor regarding the similar events in the EIT community, I am always saying to the startups and SMEs that during their pitch, it's always good to put the numbers regarding the pollution and to do the estimation because in this way, not only the judges, but also the viewers and the public who are taking the interest in the event and watching it will have a better understanding of the importance of the solution. When we have these sentences, which are just relating to the lowering the burden, but not exactly how, and it's not measuring this lowering, and it's not measuring the comparison between, for example, the certain startup and the competitors, then we as the viewers can't actually see the real influence of the exact startup. And this is something that I think is really important. So as I mentioned, the event, I think, will have a positive effect on the viewers due to passion that they will see from the startups and the environmental results regarding water scarcity startups are pledging to achieve. You mentioned how you have been and are still involved in, in coaching SMEs and, and helping them along the way. You mentioned how you're a university professor. You've been working in policy as well and on various levels of policies and decision makers. I'm wondering what would be the best place to have impact? Is there one? 
should you address all of them? It's kind of a life cycle assessment again, but of the possible impact you can have? Yes, that's a very interesting question. But yes, I would say that the entire ecosystem definitely has to be interconnected. And it's uh, sometimes a challenge because if you insert something into policy, then it's not necessarily that this policy is going to be achieved in all the levels and accepted. So there are a lot of challenges. And I would say that I completely uh, agree as a university professor that not only on the state of the governments and the policies and on the other hand, startups, but also in the level of universities, all of this should be implemented and the entire startup ecosystem should be connected with more universities around Europe because some of the universities do have the startups in their ecosystem, especially in Germany. But in the majority of universities, this is not the case. So I think this is the connection between the theory and practice should have more focus, should be on this. And I agree that the situation is not perfect and all actors in the chain have to do their part and do this interconnection. So not only theory should be teached on the university and not only, for example, these case studies and study visits should be implemented at universities, but exact support for entrepreneurs at much more universities than, the, than they are currently being involved in this process in the EU should be actually implemented. 2050 is a distant target. And I was having a discussion on that microphone with Kunal Shah from Energia, and he was saying how Energia has a rule to not work with people who have targets for 2040 or targets for 2050. They only work with people who have targets for 2023 and then what happened in 2024 and so far and so on, who really break it down because you usually eat an elephant piece by piece. By listening to you today, I was wondering if the best way would be to have to break it down like in, in concrete steps of an action plan, which ultimately builds towards a longer distance goal, but having intermediate assessments to check if we are heading into the right direction and to also have facts and figures for the impact. Is that an oversimplification or would that be your way to go? Yes, I definitely agree. I would say that actually the checks should be more frequent and that, uh, yes, calculations of the exact uh, environmental impact and different strategies uh, should be showcased. And also what I would maybe mention here is, that, for example, in Denmark, you can't as a company just claim that your product is sustainable. You have to have life cycle assessment that backs it up. So I definitely agree with you on this one. Which is an incredible way to, to, to push people to walk the talk. So I, I didn't know that that's, that rule in Denmark sounds like a very clever one. Yes, definitely. Dubravka, it's been a pleasure to spend that, that deep dive with you. And if I wasn't concerned by wasting too much of your time, I would have many more questions here. But to round it off, I propose you to switch to the rapid fire questions. So in that last section, I try to keep the questions short. You'll see that I'm anyways the one sidetracking all the time. But if you go by the rule, you have to have short answers as well. If that's fine for you. Yes. <laughs> It's time for the rapid fire questions. So my first one would be, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? The most exciting was, uh, was the first one, Green Protein, because the entire ways of uh, working in a EU project was new for me. And it was uh, something in which I have learned the most because I was just drawn in this big project and I had significant role. And this is something that was really important for the learning. Is your presentation tour over about that project or 
do people have a chance to see you presenting it again? I have presented it very heavily, yes, and there are many information about the project on the website, but yes, people are very interested in the project, in the Green Protein project, and when they want me to speak about it, I, I am very glad to speak about the project again. Yeah. Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? The hard way? I haven't learned anything the hard way. I would just say that uh, regarding research and development in general, it's a process uh, that it's not easy and uh, it uh, takes several years to make uh, a system environmentally friendly. There are many challenges in between. And for people who are not uh, in research and development, it's uh, really hard to know how this experience feels like. You have to be very psychologically strong to push it out up, up until the end. Is there something you are doing in your job today that you will not be doing in 10 years? I would say that currently I am helping with life cycle assessment analysis. And in 10 years, I am sure that life cycle assessment analysis would be more easier for SMEs and startups to do by themselves. The next one, I'm really curious because you're somewhat outside of the sector. So what would be, in your opinion, the trend to watch out for in the water sector? I have already mentioned this uh, Boston Tower in Netherlands, and I would say there's definitely examples like this. So treating wastewater organically, for example, by the pond with a special kind of plants, this is something that's very interesting. And uh, I would say that it's going to be the trend in the future because Netherlands has the government which is most sustainable. And I would say that this is their most sustainable building. So I would say that this trend would be common more in the future in Europe. The fact that you mentioned Netherlands makes for a smooth transition to my next question, because we have this big water conference coming up in 2023 at the United Nations, the first in 50 years. And one of the two countries which are responsible for putting the agenda together are Tajikistan and the Netherlands. So if you got one chance to put one point on that agenda, what would it be? I would say that regarding the conference, I would put the, the emphasis on the practical part, how to put the entire ecosystem into interconnection and also to showcase the impact of what will happen if we don't do so. That's brilliant. I would go to a conference which has that on the agenda. Great. Would you have someone to recommend that I should definitely invite on that microphone as soon as possible? Uh, yes, uh, I have a colleague and I would definitely share his contact with you. He is in the area of the environment, but also the transport. And uh, I will also have another colleague, which is strictly in the area of water, but you have maybe already interviewed him because he's really important in this area and his name is Francesco Fatone. I haven't yet, so I guess I have to correct that mistake. Yeah. And maybe Fabio Massi, because the two of them are really the leading experts in the water. But uh, yes, you have seen that our white paper was written by uh, many of us and all of my colleagues are really worth uh, of your podcast. Thanks a lot. Dubravka, it's been an awesome experience to, to have that deep dive with you on a topic which I'm certainly not an expert by any means. I remember some years ago in my engineering school doing once a life cycle assessment. So maybe you're right, in 10 years it's commonplace. For me, it's not yet. But it will be. But, but thanks a lot for sharing your, your insights. Thank you so much, Antoine. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.